Numerous times I have heard Pastor Ray Ortland say that he was just five minutes away from total disaster. And that has stuck with me because he, more than any other person, has had the single most influence on my life over the past 12 years. You've probably figured that out because I quote him in almost every sermon. So when one of my heroes and mentors says that he is just five minutes away from total disaster, then my ears perk up, and so does my heart. Here's how Ray Ortland said it in one context. He said, if we are distracted from real-time connection with the mercies of God so that our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet wandering, we are only one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. We do not have to give ourselves to raw evil to end up there. We only have to unguard our hearts. We only have to stop being vigilant. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. But if we are receiving by faith the outpouring of Christ's love in constant supply from his throne of grace, we cannot lose our way. And so our big idea today as we look at Solomon is this. Every one of us is always five minutes minutes away from total disaster. I mean, that is the stark reality. We're one click away from ruining our lives. We're one text away, one phone call away, one word away, one kiss away. We are sinners. That's who we are. Yes, we are in Christ, in union with Christ. We are redeemed. We are righteous and blameless in God's eyes. We are forgiven, but we are still sinners. We are sinners by fact. We are saints by faith. We are sinners by fact because you have already sinned today and so have I. But we are saints by faith because we trust in the finished work of God's Son. And because we are sinners, we sin and we can seriously mess our lives up by sin. If we disconnect from real-time connection with Jesus and we let our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet start wandering, then we are one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. That's sobering. But the comforting truth on the flip side of that is that we can receive by faith the outpouring of Christ's love in constant supply from the throne of grace. We can experience real-time connection with Jesus through prayer, through his word, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, through corporate worship, through fellowship with one another. And so we might mess up our lives, but we cannot lose our way. But who wants to mess up their life? Not me. Not you, I assume. God's mercy remains even if we totally mess up 
our lives. Our salvation is not at stake if we mess up our lives. Our relationship with Jesus is secure even when we really blow it. His grace and mercy is there to help us wade through the devastating consequences that our sin might bring into our lives. But let me ask you again, who really wants to mess up their life? Who wants to wake up five minutes later and realize they've totally ruined their life? This is why 1 Kings chapter 11 is in your Bible. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. God loves you enough and God loves me enough to litter his word with story after story after story of people who let their guard down, people who let their hearts drift, people who stopped fighting sin and they experienced life-shattering catastrophe. I mean, nobody wants to mess up their life. Nobody wants to mess up their marriage. Nobody wants to mess their family up. Nobody wants to mess their career up. Nobody wants to mess their church up. But it happens, right? It happens because people let their guard down. Because people lose real-time connection with Jesus. Because they lose their awe and wonder. And I don't want that for any of us. So let's listen to God's word this morning. Let's humble ourselves and listen to his word. Listen to him. Listen to his warnings. Listen to our heavenly father's warnings. After all, he's a lot smarter than us, right? He just spoke and Saturn came into existence. At the very least, that means he's smarter than you. Because he came up with a planet that has rings around it. (laughs) Jesus is a lot smarter than you and me. He knows what is best for you. You don't. You think you know what's best for you. I think I know what's best for me, but I really don't. But Jesus does. And he cares more for you and your life than even you do. I mean, think about that. Jesus cares more for you and for your life than even you do. Wow. Think about that. Let that sink in. And while it's sinking in, turn your attention to 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of your heavenly Father. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Those first seven words in verse 1 are sobering. Solomon, this great king who we have seen has been blessed by Yahweh. He's been blessed by the Lord with lots of wisdom and a flourishing kingdom. 
and gold. Lots and lots of gold as we saw last week. Solomon has it all. And now he has lost it all. And by all, I mean his heart. He's lost his heart. Solomon still has stuff. He still has gadgets. He still has houses. He still has gold and lots of it. He still has his pet peacocks and apes. He still has wives, lots of wives, but he lost his heart. And that's why he lost his heart. Instead of accumulating and collecting classic cars like most rich guys do, Solomon collected women. What a sicko, right? Solomon viewed women as proper property to be used to satisfy his desires. That's sick. Women are not property. Women have not been put on this earth to fulfill the desires of men, especially the way Solomon wants. Now, we saw back in chapter 3, if you recall, that Solomon was married to Pharaoh's daughter. That was his first wife, and he should have been content. One woman is enough. That's God's plan. One woman plus one man. That is the biblical design of marriage. One woman plus one man. That is a match made in heaven. Not one man plus 1,000 women. Or not any other combination. And if you remember back in chapter 3, I argued that it wasn't wrong for Solomon to marry Pharaoh's daughter, even though she wasn't an Israelite. This is just my opinion and my interpretation. Scholars disagree on whether it was right for Solomon to marry someone who wasn't an Israelite. But Solomon knew God's law. He knew that the prohibition against marrying foreign women did not include Egyptian women. God did not forbid the Israelites from marrying... I mean, God did forbid the Israelites from marrying Canaanite women, the inhabitants of the land, their next-door neighbors. But Egyptian women never made the list of girls you couldn't marry. As one commentator states, such a union was not forbidden by the law, which only forbade alliance with the Canaanites, nor was the daughter of Pharaoh apparently implicated in the charge brought against Solomon's other foreign wives of having led him into idolatry. So, practically, was it wise for Solomon to marry an Egyptian woman? Probably not. But I do not believe that it was a direct violation of the Lord's commands. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 11, Solomon's Egyptian wife is not included in the list of foreign women who led his heart away. She is specifically separated from the other women in this list. Solomon loved his first wife, Pharaoh's daughter. But he also loved all of these other foreign women that he collected like classic cars. Now many people want to throw Solomon under the bus because it may be that his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter was actually a marriage alliance, and it might have been. But the point the author of 1 Kings keeps making here is that it's not Solomon's politics that get him in trouble. It's his heart. Solomon didn't belong to the wrong political party. He had wrong desires in his heart that he then acted upon. Listen, the most important thing about you is not your politics. That's hard to hear as Americans, isn't it? 
The most important thing about you is not your politics. The most important thing about you is right in the middle of your body and it goes boom, 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 boom. It's your heart. And Solomon let his heart drift. Solomon ignored God's word in Genesis. And instead of being content with one woman, he collected them like classic cars. What a sicko. He saw women as property to be collected to meet his physical desires. And he ignored these warnings in God's law. Warnings in the book of Deuteronomy, which he should have been reading and copying by hand. Deuteronomy 7 says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Or Deuteronomy 17 Verse 17 says, and speaking about the king, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So Solomon had this very clear word from the Lord. God is just telling him, you're going to ruin your life if you ignore me. You've got to love that about God, that he's so open. He has this clear word from the Lord about intermarrying with the nations and multiplying wives, and Solomon ignores this. La, 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 can't hear you, Yahweh. Solomon had both many wives and they were pagan. And so our story is beginning to end terribly. Solomon was five minutes away from total disaster. Here's how Ray Ortland spoke of being five minutes away from total disaster in a different context. He said, Jesus was tender with harlots, and he was tough on the Pharisees. And let's face it, we are all sexual sinners. Everyone above puberty is a sexual sinner because sin infiltrates everything we are. I myself am always five minutes away from total disaster. So are you, but the Lord is for us, and he will help us. We need this reminder of being five minutes away from total disaster because of how sin works. Sin is subtle. It's deceptive. Unlike God who shows you all of his cards and says, you're going to ruin your life. Sin doesn't do that. Sin holds its cards close to its chest or on the table and peeks up and has a poker face. God just lays it all out there. Here's my hand. This is what I've got. But sin is subtle. It's deceptive. It doesn't show you all of its cards. It doesn't show you its hand. Sin is subtle because it's internal. Did you see the emphasis on the heart in verses 2 through 4? Five times the word heart is used. But don't misunderstand the heart here. Because in Hebrew culture, the heart is not just the feelings and emotions which is how we typically think of the heart. In Hebrew, it does include that, does include the infections, but in Hebrew, it also includes the mind and the will and the intellect. And so there's no separation between mind and heart in the Bible or in the Hebrew language. This underlies the internal aspect of Solomon's life. His departure from Yahweh began in the invisible part of his life, in his head and heart. And if we are going to experience total disaster in our lives, guess where it starts? In the invisible part, 
where nobody can see. Solomon's slip is internal. Maybe people couldn't see it right away, but it was happening. Solomon wasn't walking around with a t-shirt that said, I'm turning away from Yahweh even though you can't see it. But it was happening and it snowballed with each marriage. But sin is not just internal. It's gradual. It doesn't take place overnight. Solomon didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and decide to walk away from the Lord. It was gradual. That's how sin is in our lives. It gradually, over time, desensitizes us. And before you know it, you've drifted away and you've lost real-time connection with Jesus. To quote Ray Ortland again, I told you I love him. He said this last week on Twitter, and it's so helpful. He says, I am helped by remembering that I am always, moment by moment, creating the conditions I'll have to live with five minutes from now. And to some extent, the conditions you'll have to live with. My space touches your space, so I owe you the best I can come up with. Sin is gradual, but there's a paradox. It's also moment by moment. Uh, We can be five minutes away from disaster, but also there's this gradual descent. Moment by moment, we are creating the conditions that we're going to live with five minutes from now and the conditions that the people in our lives are going to have to live with. So right now, we are creating the next five minutes of our lives. And we don't want to ruin our lives, right? So if we don't want to ruin our lives, we have to be vigilant to guard our hearts. And this is where Solomon went wrong. Francis Schaeffer used to say a lot in his teachings that every moment we are casting pebbles into the pool and making ripples that will go on forever. That's just reality, even for an unbeliever. Think back to how Solomon started his reign. 1 Kings chapter 3 says that Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. And where does his love go by the end of his life? We see in verse 2, it says, Solomon clung to these women in love. He clung to 1,000 women, and they turned his heart away from the Lord unto other gods. He didn't just love 1,000 women. He didn't just go after their gods. Solomon worshipped them and even built them their own temples and places of worship. He started casting pebbles and the ripples went until they reached the shores of the pagan gods Ashtoreth, Molech, and Chemosh. Look at verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So who did Solomon begin to worship first? Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a god worshipped by the Canaanites and by the Sidonians. She was the goddess of the moon and the goddess of sensual love and the goddess of fertility. And so naturally, eHarmony.com thought Ashtoreth would be compatible with the Canaanite god Baal. Because Baal was the god of thunder and lightning and rain and fertility. And so Baal's lover was Ashtoreth. 
And the Canaanites worshipped these gods, and they believed that whenever Baal and Ashtoreth were intimate, then the rains would come down and water their crops. But the Canaanites did not believe that you just wait on Baal to send rain for your crops. They didn't believe in let go and let Baal. They believed that people should encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to be intimate by being intimate themselves. And so the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution at their temples and at their shrines. They would have prostitutes, harlots available at the shrines, and you could worship Baal and Ashtoreth by engaging with the prostitute. Now you can see why this is a problem when the Israelites begin uh, occupying the promised land in the books of Joshua and Judges because the Canaanites were their neighbors. And sadly, Solomon has given in to his Sidonian and Canaanite wives and he built them an altar to Ashtoreth so that they could worship. But Solomon also worshipped Milcom. Milcom, also called Molech in verse 7, was the god of the Ammonites. Molech, Milcom, was the god of the sun and sky. And he had the body of a man but the head of a bull with these horns sticking out. Pretty freaky looking. And here's the sick part about Molech. Worship of Molech was accompanied by the burning of children offered as a sacrifice to Molech by their parents. If you think Molech was just some ancient god, though, think again. If you think the slaughter of innocent children was something relegated to the 900s B.C., Think again, because the spirit of Molech is alive and well today in the abortion industry. The spirit of Molech is the one pulling the strings behind Planned Parenthood and other organizations that want to harm children by infecting them, influencing them, and injecting them. I read a sad statistic yesterday, which I knew about, but I didn't know the numbers. But in 2016, there were 47,718 reported pregnancies, almost 48,000 reported pregnancies of African-American women in New York. Almost 48,000 reported pregnancies in 2016, 49% of those babies were aborted. The spirit of Molech is alive and well in America. And Solomon, the man who loved Yahweh back in chapter 3, the man raised by his father David to love Yahweh, he allowed his beautiful Ammonite wives to sway his allegiance to Yahweh. And so Solomon, if you will, built a planned parenthood clinic across the street from the temple where he worshipped Yahweh. And as the sweet smell of burnt offerings went up from the brazen altar in the temple, the putrid smell of human flesh filled the air as babies were burned alive to appease Molech. What a sicko. And if that's not enough to make your stomach churn in church, there's still one more God that Solomon and Sons Construction Company built a church for. Solomon also worshipped Chemosh. 
Chemosh was worshipped by the Moabites. So most likely Ruth, in the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite who most likely worshipped Chemosh until Yahweh opened her eyes and she trusted in him. Chemosh, Chemosh was also worshipped through child sacrifice. And as if these big three gods of the ancient Near East were not enough to put Solomon in the drifted away from Yahweh category, verse 8 says that he did this for all his foreign wives. And so 1,000 plus women get altars and shrines built to their respective gods. It's too late for Solomon now because he's dead and gone. But if he were here today, he'd probably tell us this. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. Solomon would wholeheartedly agree with what Jacob Smith says. We are all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of us are already on day two. For some of us here today, we're three days away from becoming a tabloid headline, and some of us are already on day two. So let me say to you today, don't let your heart drift. My brothers and sisters, don't let your heart drift. And pray that mine won't drift. You're one click away, and so am I. You're one text away, one kiss away, one look away. And so look to Jesus and keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Rehearse the gospel over and over again. Preach the gospel to yourself and see the beauty of Jesus as he lives for you and dies for you. Don't lose your awe. Just pray, God, don't let me lose my awe. That's why you have all these prayers in the Psalms. David and others say things like, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to getting gain. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. Unite my heart to fear your name. Satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all day. Those prayers are given to us so that we can emulate them and pray them so that our hearts won't drift. Listen to God today. Listen to your heavenly Father He's smarter than you, and he loves you more than you even know, and he cares about you more than you do. And listen to Solomon this morning. If Solomon were here today, he'd also say this to us, I think. He'd say, don't cram your heart full of death. Fill your heart with the love of Jesus by believing the gospel moment by moment. Keep real-time communion with him. Y'all don't have to give yourselves to raw evil like I did to end up where I did. You'll only have to unguard your hearts. Just start losing your awe of Jesus and what he has done for you and you'll end up building a shrine to Chemosh or walking away from your spouse or gossiping and spreading lies about others or letting bitterness take root in your hearts. Trust me, all y'all are always just five minutes away from total disaster. Y'all are three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of you are already on day two. Listen, statistically, there has to be people here this morning, and your hearts are drifting, and Jesus loves you enough to say to you right now, don't come home. 
Some of you are drifting in your marriage and you know it. And the lie looks so good. And Jesus is saying, don't. It's a trap. Some of you are harboring bitterness and it actually feels good to you to be bitter towards that person. It's a lie. It's a cancer that's eating away at your heart and Jesus loves you enough to say, let go, forgive. I don't know who that's for, but statistically there has to be at least for one person here today. But it gets worse for Solomon. And I'm sorry this is a heavy sermon, but Jesus loves us enough to kind of grab us by the collar and say, hey, listen up, don't go there. But it gets worse for Solomon, believe it or not. Worse? Yes. Solomon not only built all these high places for his lady friends, he also worshipped with them there. Verse 5 seems to allude to that when it says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth and after Milcom. It appears that Solomon not only used his construction company to build these places for these foreign gods, he also worshipped there on Sunday mornings. He most likely engaged in worship with these prostitutes and he may have even engaged in child sacrifice possibly but don't lose sight of this this is just first commandment stuff that's all this is solomon failed to keep the first commandment he didn't follow in the steps of his father david that of course doesn't mean that david was a saint because we know all about david's resume don't we murder assault rape But David was faithful to Yahweh in that he never worshipped other gods. He sinned a lot. Boy, did he sin a lot. Right? Murder, assault, and rape is a lot. But he never worshipped other gods. David may have failed at some of the commandments of the Lord, but he never worshipped Ashtoreth, Molech, or Chemosh. And so after all that Solomon has experienced at the good hand of Yahweh in blessing him, how could Solomon turn away? The Lord spoke to him twice. How could he fail at the first commandment? How could he drop the ball at first commandment business? One word, sin, because sin is subtle. That's why Solomon strayed. And gradually his heart began to drift. Because that's how sin works. I love the way Puritan John Owen describes it. He says, Indwelling sin must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit. The mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing and tempting. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if let alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. 
Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? Every sin has as its goal your destruction, Christian. A mere thought of lust wants to lead to physical adultery or sexual immorality. A mere thought of hatred wants to lead to murder. That's its goal. Unbelief wants to turn into atheism. When you get mad at someone in traffic, if sin had its way, you'd pull a gun out and kill the driver who angered you. It's sobering. It's sobering because John Owen called it indwelling sin. It's actually inside of us. And so the million dollar question is, how do we kill indwelling sin? How do we mortify sin? Mortify is the word that the Puritans used to describe killing indwelling sin. How do we mortify indwelling sin? Well, John Owen is helpful here again. He said, A sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. Is that how you would answer it? How do you kill sin? Remembering how much God loves you? Or would you answer it differently? Owen says, a sense of the love of Christ in the cross lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. We need the Spirit, for starters, to remind us, as Paul says in Romans 8, that we are God's children, that we are loved. And so Puritan John Owen, who wrote the manual on killing sin, said that the key to all spiritual mortification, all sin being resisted, and all sin being put to death was this, understanding and believing just how much Jesus loves you. That's the key. God's love is the key. It's why I preach about God's love every single week, because that is the key to you saying no to sin. That's the key to you saying no to an adulterous relationship. That's why Jude says we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. When Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, he doesn't mean that we can lose God's love because we can't. That's the good news of the gospel. How how bad we mess up our lives, we can never lose God's love as his children. But staying in God's love keeps our hearts from drifting. Reminding ourselves of how much God loves us keeps us from straying. Hearing sermons week after week about how much Jesus loves us keeps us from the disaster that's just five minutes away. And so how do we fight it? The answer is simple. It's the gospel that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We come back to the cross. We do what Robert Murray Machane said. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. 
Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. I mean, there it is. Let the Spirit fill every nook and cranny of your heart with God's love for you in the gospel. Hear the Holy Spirit's caring reminder to you today. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. I mean, every step away, every inch moved away from Jesus is disaster, right? Every one of us is just three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline. And most of us are already on day two. So how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep from ruining our lives or the lives of others, the lives of our family? How do we keep from becoming a tabloid headline? How do we keep ourselves away from total disaster? Jude told us we keep ourselves in the love of God. We live much in the smiles of God. We bask in his beams. We feel his all-seeing eye settled on us in love. We repose in his almighty arms. We let our souls be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. And we let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of our hearts. Let's do that as a church. Let's put to death bitterness and gossip and strife and anger. and Let's let the Holy Spirit fill every nook and cranny of our heart. Let's be a church that keeps itself in the love of God. Besides, is there any other better place to be? Is there any other place that we'd rather be than in God's love? Nope. Let's stay right here in God's love. Now, maybe you've wrecked your life already. You know, like, I've already done the five minutes away from disaster thing. I'm six months past the five minutes away from disaster. Maybe you've drifted, or maybe you're close to it, close to messing up. Maybe you're on minute four, or maybe you're on day two. Jesus says to you today, come unto me. Come home. If that's you here, and this is really for all of us, hear these words from this old dead pastor, Octavius Winslow. He said this, speaking of the ocean of God's love. He said, how many of us stand but upon the shore of this ocean? How little do we know experimentally of the love of Christ in our souls? He says, bring your heart with its profoundest emptiness, its most startling discovery of sin, its lowest frame, its deepest sorrow, and sink it into the depths of the Savior's love. That infinite sea will flow over all, erase all, absorb all, and your soul shall swim and sport amid its gentle waves, exclaiming in your joy and transport, 
Oh, the depths. The Lord direct your heart into the love of God. Just as it is. Hard, cold, fickle, sinful, sad, and sorrowful. Christ's love touching your hard heart will dissolve it. Christ's love touching your cold heart will warm it. Christ's love touching your sinful heart will purify it. Christ's love touching your sorrowful heart will soothe it. Christ's love touching your wandering heart will draw it back to himself. Only bring your heart to Christ's love. Let's do that now. Let's do that as a church. Let's keep ourselves in the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us because we love so many things that are just bad. We love being bitter with people, as strange as that seems. It, it, it feeds us in a weird way. We love looking at things we shouldn't look at. Um, we love being angry. We love all this stuff that's just killing us. We cram our hearts full of death. And there you are saying, there's an ocean of my kindness and love that brings healing and health and life, God. And we're standing on the shore, afraid to get in. We ask you to forgive us, to wash us. We ask the Holy Spirit to come now and to fill every chamber of our heart, every nook and cranny with your love. Keep us from ruining our lives and the lives of others, Father. Don't let us lose our awe. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.